It's Europe calling with Terry Whitehead and Vince Tracy. Items in the news that you might have missed. Europe calling. Well, a very good day, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. It is the 3rd of August, 2023. Our weather is sort of clammy, humid. Um, we've even had a few specks of rain this morning, so I'll go about um, three quarters of an hour to the west and we'll find out how Terry is. So, Terry, what's your weather been like today? <coughs> it's... Uh... No, it's, it's very nice today. Very nice. Um, yeah, of course, it's warm, it's hot, but there's quite a strong, um, bit more than a breeze, quite a strong wind blowing, which is uh, very helpful. So hopefully it'll blow away the uh, <clears throat> the humidity, reduce the humidity down, because that's what kills us. But yeah. it's been it was quite warm last night, I thought. But uh, yeah, no, it's quite pleasant today, thank God. Yeah, I was looking at the Spanish TV earlier this morning and I think uh, virtually everywhere they seem to be showing you that there was quite a bit of wind about. So, um, yeah, OK, well, I think we're just about ready to crack on and uh, let's go to our first talking point, which is this one. <laughs> So according to data released this past Tuesday by Eurostat, the static statistical office of the European Union, Spain is the country with the highest unemployment rate in the EU. The country suffers from more unemployment than Greece, 11.1%, Sweden, 79 Lithuania, 75 uh, Those are the better records. Um, sorry, the ones that I'm going to give you now are the better ones. Malta, 2.6%, Poland, 2.6%, Czech Republic, 27 um, and the average unemployment rate amongst EU members is 5.9. The Spanish unemployment rate is also worse than that of our neighbours, France, 7.1. Portugal, 6.4. Uh, they're countries with historically turbulent economies. And the comparison with other Mediterranean countries is also negative. Both Italy and the Balkan countries achieve better records than Spain. As an employer, Terry, have you got um, any sort of understanding of what could be the problem? <laughs> it's, it's always been the problem since the last 48 years I've been here, Vince, hmm. is that uh, unemployment in Spain, <clears throat> or maybe the last 48, or certainly the last 40, unemployment in, in Spain has always been horrendous biblical levels, you know, 10, 11, 12%. Uh, you're talking 25% from the, uh, the under 25-year-olds. Uh, horrendous um, levels. <clears throat> obviously, the governments are, are crowing that the figures have, have dropped down, but we get seasonal drops here. Obviously, tourism creates massive amounts of employment. Um, but come October, November, those people are chucked on the scrap heap again. Construction, we get there's, there's, always there's more construction employment in the in the, in the summer months than the winter. So that's another thing that uh, affects the the, the percentage. But it's, uh, yeah, the, 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 the government in Spain are crowing that the, um, the, the unemployment rates are down. They are, but it's still very high compared to other countries. 
And of course, the big thing is now uh, we've got another hung parliament. And, you know, I was watching this morning um, people giving their views on what was likely to be uh, the next step forward. But it really appeared at the end of the period of time I was watching that nobody's really got any idea what's going to happen. What would you feel uh, you'd like to happen? Well, with the, with the, well, they're going to have another election, that's for sure. I don't think anyone, anyone's going to have enough um, clout to hold any government together. And there's no point trying to maintain a minority government. And neither of the two big political parties that have enough seats uh, to carry a majority government, even by affiliating with other parties next to them, they won't gain enough seats. So they're going to have to run this through again and... Uh, have another election, which I can only see that the um, PP party will get stronger and um, the the socialists will get weaker uh, with, with another election. And don't forget, they, they called this election the middle of the summer holidays, which is a strange time for anybody to call an election unless you've got an ulterior motive, which is if you're a, a Labour party, your ulterior motive is your supporters are more than likely to be at home in the village than out gallivanting on the beach somewhere. So uh, that, that's, that was his reason for calling the election uh, really so quickly and at a ridiculous time of the year. Um, so I'll guess, my guess will be before Christmas we'll have another one. I would also, th- this is totally and utterly just the way I'm thinking, nothing to do with any facts or anything else, but, you know... Of, of the sort of people that we're talking about, I would really expect the more PP to be an older group of people, um, probably with um, savings, with people who basically, uh, I, I think they're more likely to put themselves out for an election, whereas possibly the PSOE would not be those people. You know, they're more likely to be the people that we just talked to as identified as being on the beaches. I'm not too sure that I understand that his thinking is right there. Would you agree with um, his thinking or would you think that maybe the way I've put it might be a little bit more accurate? I just think that he, he, <clears throat> he, called, he called the election uh, on a snap decision after the council election results, which you knew, he, he knew very well what was going to happen in the council election results, but they got thrashed. And he called the election immediately to be held in the middle of the, the holiday period, the Spanish holiday period. Um, there can only be one reason for that, Vince. He, he, was, he, was, he was throwing the bones on the floor and reading the signs. You, you wouldn't think maybe he's just had enough of the whole lot and he thought, blow it, you know, I'll just say, see what the country thinks. No, no, he's, he's desperate to hang on. Okay. And the only way he, he had a, a, any chance of hanging on was doing what he did. And let's be honest, he wasn't that far. He wasn't that far off it. Only, only because of the uh, the new party, um, Sumer, which which has um, been started, taking three dozen votes, I think, uh, three dozen seats. Um, I think the PP had 102 or something. But it, it's it's. Um, the, this the new party. Um, we can only assume has stolen seats from the from the from the uh, PSOE rather. The stolen seats from the PSOE, and of course with the PP party, the Conservative Party, they were banking on getting the seats from uh, with with Vox, which is the ultra right wing party. 
and Vox lost is it 19 or 22 seats? I can't mm. remember now. They lost seats because they're on they're on which I I predicted way back. They're on the way out. They they were just a protest vote right from the beginning, and now people realise you, you can't seriously vote to to bring Franco back. That's basically what you're you're asking them people to do. Nobody wants that. So that they they lost seats, and in the next round they'll lose even more, which you would think would go to the PP party, the Conservative party. Mm. Um, but it's the ascendancy of the uh, Sumer party, the new left-wing party, which is one to look at, I think. Well, interesting. They're going to get stronger. Yeah, I've got a couple of things that they seem tangential. They don't really seem uh, that involved with what we're talking about, but maybe there might be a little uh, clue here and there. So let's go to the next one. Okay, here it is. So we're talking about the Spanish government. I can imagine they're disconnecting their phones. And um, I'm looking at an article which is talking about the entire urban space of Guernica Lumo. This is up in the Basque Country and uh, it's going to be considered a, a place of memory. So the Spanish government had originally meant to grant this status to just one landmark building. And now what they've done is decided to expand it to the entire municipality. Um, when I first came to Spain, I wanted to go and see what this was all about because obviously I know that it was bombed in 1937 by the Luft Condor Legion. So the German Air Force that Hitler sent his ally Francisco Franco to help the nationalist uh, rebels and um, this was to take power during the Spanish Civil War. The attack was famously de depicted by Pablo Picasso in his giant painting Guernica and the move had been requested by local and provincial leaders, the University of the Basque Country and human rights groups. In its decision, the government noted that the town is known internationally for being the target of one of the first indiscriminate bombings against a civilian population in the world, uh, configuring itself as a testing ground for what would later be put into practice in World War II. The Nazi aviation attack Guernica in its Basque spelling, G-E-R-N-I-K-A, and then in Castellano, G-U-E-R-N-I-C-A. I've obviously used the uh, English letters for the sake of our listeners. In support of Franco's forces on uh, April the 26th, uh, 1937. Didn't realise that was the birthday of one of my uh, sons, actually. Uh, not the year, but the, the date. <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. Um, the city lacked anti-aircraft defences and it was destroyed in three hours of incessant uh, bombardment. Uh, this is Paul Preston recalling in a, his bio biography of Franco. In actual fact, when I went there, um, I found a lot more that uh, isn't seemingly written straight away. Like, for example, the fact that it was a number of villages. It wasn't just Guernica. Um, and then the other thing that I found absolutely really weird is that where they had the big tree, which was the per the parliament used to sit there, apparently, um, the, uh, the, the, the area has f quite a few German busts on uh, pillars. And I found that rather weird. I, di I don't know whether or not uh, you would think the same, but I would have thought the last thing you'd really want would be 
you know, uh, busts of people that were involved with what went on, um, from the German point of view anyway. Uh, Going back to the space being given this uh, place of memory status, now, is that the PSOE government trying to um, maybe flirt a little bit with the, the Basque country's parliament? What do you think? Prostitution by any other name. It's a funny time to do it, isn't it? <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> it is. It is prostitution by other No, it, well, of course it is. But uh, it's by <laughs> 1937, where are we now? 2023. Yeah. Gee, 63, 86 years ago. It's taken that long, has it, to uh, declare this. And we'll do it just after we've had a terrible result in the election. Let's see if we can get a few more votes in the Basque country. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. No, I'm amazed you mentioned about the German bus because being a German in that area, you, you're you not particularly liked. The, when I was I was working up there in... I was up there in 81. I was up there the villa, but I was up there again in 91, I think, when I was working up there, thereabouts, 92. Um, and there weren't many Mercedes cars. It was made very clear to me that I didn't like German manufactured or anything German for that matter. And quite the opposite, that I, I never realised historically that because I was British, I had so much help and, and friendliness of people. I've never experienced anywhere else in my life the, 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 the help from complete strangers. I mean, big help from complete strangers all because I was British. It wasn't. It was a while later for it was explained to me why. Because during the Civil War, <clears throat> um, Britain sent ships across to Bilbao to take away the children after Guernica to take away the children from the from the Basque country because of the bombings. Yeah. And to foster them in the UK, and that they returned them after the when the Civil War ended um, in thirty eight, wasn't it thirty nine? Mm-hmm. Thirty eight. They returned them back in well thirty nine. They returned them back back to, to the to the Basque country again and that's something they've never forgotten and I never realized just the fact that I was British afforded me the, the, the help uh, and, and and the care that the, these people were giving me purely for my, my nationality thank God they never knew I was a brummy <laughs> really, well, but, but, but with the Germans it was totally the opposite they wanted nothing to do with anybody German when in back in the 90s so I'm amazed you thought you found some German busts, unless they use them for target practice. <laughs> well, look, I, I do also know that there were about 3,000 volunteers came across to help uh, uh, during the, um, the, you know, the the process of the the war, and yeah, the, the international brigade. Yeah, basically a communist, the communist party. Yeah, well, well, in actual fact, uh, you see, it, it gets really very, very, um, very involved, even more so than the, the papers would probably lead you to believe, because quite frankly, I mean, there's all sorts of there, like uh, there's a British uh, cemetery not far from Bilbao. I can't remember exactly where it is, in the mountains somewhere, because I think we visited it. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, the, the big thing really is the... Um, the, the strength of feeling even today, if you were to say you're Spanish um, and you're with the the wrong sort of people from the Basque area, they will put you absolutely in your place and make sure that you know uh, that it's the Basque country. And for example, even as innocuous a thing as uh, Spain playing football, I asked somebody um, whether he was going to watch the match and he said, why should I? He said, um, this is the Basque country. <laughs> That's you know. right. Yeah. Uh, well, they're very, they're very, very proud nation. Um, 
I've often said that there's one mistake I've made in my life. It was actually not staying up there. I'd have been better off moving up to the Basque Country. I, I, I mentioned the people are wonderful. Countryside, beautiful and green, very English sort of looking, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and very on uh, under under constructed, shall we say? Yeah. I mean, Bill Bear itself, you can you can walk across it in about half an hour or something. It's, it's only it's not that big at all. Um, it, it you could be in the centre in Bilbao and look up at the green hills around you. It's it's a uh, it, it is a, a strange, and I find a quite wonderful area. The, the San Sebastian on the French border, that's the main Basque area where Basque politics come to the front. Yeah. But certainly in the Bilbao, in Bilbao area, there's 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 none of that really. Well, that's... I remember that there was two there was two uh, Basque TV stations. I remember that nobody seemed to be listening to, <laughs> but. Uh, they had two Basque TV stations popping out in the bars. Yeah, I, I came to Spain really <laughs> from the Basque country because, um, you know, I have family that live in the Bilbao area. Yeah. And uh, I have a love of the, the Basque country. I think it's just uh, an exceptionally nice place. I'm with you on that one. I really am. Mm. I don't know why people come to Bandon. <laughs> if you go to the north, the north of Spain is beautiful. Absolutely. Okay, so we've got another uh, Brexit-related story next. So um, let's see what this one is. So uh, this was one of the drawbacks of Brexit, and it was the way in which easy access to higher education between Britain and European Union member states became more difficult. This impacted on the Erasmic, uh, Erasmus, Erasmus educational Erasmus, programme. Yeah. yeah, I was involved in it. I mean, I was bringing people across um, to the to Europe, um, not to Spain, but uh, into Brittany. Uh, but it was still the Erasmus uh, educational programme, which allowed yeah, for... My, my son-in-law, was, uh, he went to university in, in, in Ireland, you know. Yeah, but it was all part of the same sort of process. <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean, the, the thing is, it, it's he's Spanish. My was speaking Spanish. Well, the the uh, that they uh, gave training abroad and uh, uh, there were some great opportunities available. Um, but there's now become a bilateral agreement. I don't know if you know about this, but I was reading yesterday. It's a cooperation in matters of educational and access to university and other higher education institutions following close collaboration between Spain's Ministry of Education and Vocational Training and Ministry of Universities in Spain and the UK Department for Education and Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. The agreement was signed by the British Ambassador to Spain, Hugh Elliott, on behalf of the UK and the Spanish Minister of Education and Vocational Training, Pilar Alegría, uh, and the Spanish Ministry um, of Universities, Joan Subirats, on behalf of Spain. So I think that shows you that um, there is still quite a lot of affinity between Spain and um, the UK. Probably lurking in behind of that is the amount of money that comes in over the tourism borders. Uh, I think you'd agree with that. Well, obviously, I mean, the, the, the UK... Um the, the UK pitching there, their two penefits to the Spanish economy via tourism is, is not to be, is not to be smirked at. I mean, even though it's it's about twelve, tourism is about twelve, I think about twelve percent of the economy. That's still a large, still a large number. But people would always think Spain it's only got a, the economy is tourism. It's not at all. They've got a massive uh, engineering uh, 
shipbuilding as well. Anyway, massive uh, um, uh, different types of commerce. The thing that's always amazed me, Vince, is is there was nothing wrong with the original EEC that Britain joined, the European Economic Community. Nothing wrong with that. It it all got perverted and twisted, and, and, and corrupted by by the, the corrupt individuals working out of Strasbourg and Luxembourg and God knows where else in Brussels, feathering their own nest, trying to get uh, the United States of Europe uh, and even a, a, a European armed forces, which they always denied would never happen. But they tried to form that after the Lisbon the Lisbon Treaty killed it basically. Then it became a political a political country rather than just a, a commercial union. If it stayed as a commercial union, Britain would still be part of it. Everyone would be a lot better off and you wouldn't have all the, the, the trouble and strife that, that's affecting the different countries at the moment throughout Europe. Yeah. There'll be much more stability. And the, the things like the Erasmus programme, which not people know about, not people know about it, is, is, it, it, was a, it was sacrificed as part of the Brexit deal if, unnecessarily. Yeah. It's just there's a big broom sweeping everything off the table. And now bit by bit they're trying to put put a few things back on the table. You know, eventually they might end up with an EEC. And that's my my hope that they do that. I feel that um that there are certain names that uh, if you really prodded and probed and looked a little, little bit more deeply at what was going on, I think there were a few people throwing their toys out of the pram over the fact that Britain saw through some of the things that were being planned. And one thing that did really surprise me, um, when we were travelling in France, you know, at the time of the Maastricht Treaty, the information coming into Britain was not the same as what I was hearing in France on French radio. And certainly mm. when it came to Brexit, the one thing that didn't really um, get very, very deeply discussed was what would happen regarding the nuclear weapons because you have, of course, a bomb in France and you've got a bomb in, in the United Kingdom. Yeah. I didn't hear one debate about that, you know. I think that was rather rather shady that that was never brought to the surface. Well, again, that would be... I mean, it's logical that, that Britain would be defend Europe and hopefully Europe would defend Britain uh, in any sort of uh, worldwide altercation. But if it... If it comes down to throwing bombs, it's all over anyway. So it doesn't really make a lot of difference, does it? Yeah. But see, eventually, I mean, I would hope to think that uh, all sides will come together on that uh, that position. But hopefully, we never cross that line. We're mm -hmm. getting close to it. Okay. Uh, now you mentioned Sumar a little bit earlier on, and I found something about this that um, I thought was worthy of our discussion. So let me get that up. Okay, so Spain's current Labour minister and the second deputy prime minister, Yolanda Diaz, has said that her new political platform, SUMAR, will give young people a €20,000 handout, which they can use to invest in property, to set up a business or to study. Uh, she's got this newly formed SUMAR party now encompassing 15 left-wing groups, which include the socialist government's current coalition partner, Podemos. 
Um, they've called it a universal inheritance, which aims to in, to correct inequality among the roughly 8.2 million under-18s living in Spain. The €20,000 startup money would be to study and to kickstart uh, life goals. Uh, she said, with higher education, entrepreneurship and property mentioned as the three options where the money could be invested by young Spanish adults. So, um, once they get to uh, 18, would be entitled and which would be effective until the age of 23. Now, was she posturing? Because she's in the government at the moment and she is the Labour Minister. So uh, that puts her in a rather strange situation. Um, you know, what does she do? Uh, follow the party line, uh, which at that time had nothing to do with something like this? Or what What was going on, Terry? Because I didn't understand that. Can you try and explain to me the, the phrase buying votes? I can't think of a, a more clear example. They give 20 grand to every kid, in every every person between 18 and 23 Okay. in the country. Uh, or shall we say, the promise will give you 20 grand if you vote for us. If we get in, we'll give you all 20 grand. They've just bought the 18 to 23, 18 to 25 year old uh, voting block um, with that statement. Who's not going to vote for it? <laughs> so, really. Even, even kids who, I'm saying the word kids, wrong to say that, but just to generalise 18 to 25, even kids of that age uh, who, who generally don't vote at all are going to get off their backside and they've got 20,000 euro. Oh, we'll have some of that. Of course they are. What a, another, what a lovely, great, great uh, political hook. Okay, oh, so I can't think of a better one, really. I mean, the, well, if the it, various ones. I've, I've often forecast that the Labour Party in Britain would start if we have free beer and uh, free gambling and free football and everything else. I mean, they just promise everything for free and you, you, you just garner votes. Had you, um, had you heard of that one? No. Okay, so really, that would then uh, follow on from what you said earlier about maybe you know where the where the PP weren't as successful as maybe people were predicting. Possibly that was the one that's maybe um, s turned the the tables just a little bit. Although I think most young people would tend to vote left wing rather than uh, right wing anyway, wouldn't they? I think generally across the world they tend to do that. But yeah. If you're going to give me 20 grand, Vince, you're certainly going to get my attention. OK, well, look, I, I looked a little bit further into this because there are numbers of things that are coming to light, uh, which once you look a little bit deeper, the, 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 then, you know, maybe you can see other things. This is uh, where it first came about from Thomas Piketty. OK, uh, so this was in 2019. And he was a French economist calling for all French citizens to receive 120,000 euros for their 25th birthday. That's a sum that's considerably higher, of course, than the one proposed by Diaz. According to Samara, tax on wealth and inheritance of under 10%, which excludes first homes and assets of up to a million euros, would be sufficient to fund the scheme. The cost could amount to 0.8% of Spain's GDP, around £8 billion, and entrepreneurship should not be linked to parental means. The proposal is modest as there are economic activities that can't be established with 20 grand. So it would appear that the idea has come in really from France uh, 
and uh, somehow they feel that maybe I, you see I, I I think that the international communist movement is involved in virtually everything at the moment and I think that you if you can see that that has been something that was proposed in France and look at the way that the French politics has hit a load of problems um, yeah I, I definitely see that there's a lot of collusion going on I, I don't think that's intensely horrible for me to say that I think that's pretty obvious isn't it money equals power and if you can to get power you need the votes to get the votes you need to buy them promise people generally speaking votes are bought by people promising a better life promising vote for our party and streets will be paved with gold and no child will be starving everyone will have a roof over their head just politics generally lie through their teeth throughout the world to get you to convince you to go and put a cross next to their name and then, of course, we all know what happens after that. These promises are conveniently forgotten or put on the back burner or said that in our next government, in the next five years' time, we'll be, we'll be addressing that one. Uh, and this one, we're going to be doing this, that, and the other. It's, it's, it's lies. Thing. I mean, the whole, the whole idea of democracy, to be honest with you, um, we deserve it because we, we've created something which is, doesn't work. Um, it does in theory, and it should work in theory. Um, but to me, the French have got the, not the French, the Swiss have got the best way of doing it, where you are, forcibly, you have to vote by law. And I think every month they, they put up a, a number of laws for you to vote on or changes to the law. In other words, it's not the members of parliament that make the decision. They, 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 the members of parliament make the decision to put up the different laws, for instance, they wish to bring in or to change. And the electorate, and the electorate vote on them. And you have to vote. By law, you have to vote or you're penalised. And so the electorate, get, they do get a democracy. The rest of us believe the lies that we're told by whatever colour of politician you want to talk about. They're all exactly the same, believe me. And when they get in, what do they do? Do what the hell they want. They don't, do, they don't address the, the, the promises that they gave you. So Switzerland, I think that's a great idea what they're doing there. Albeit, it's, it's a very right-wing government, isn't it? Mm. Um it is. I mean, it's it is a strange one that uh, they are quite so successful in some respects. But then, you know, I don't know enough about Swiss politics to really um, to have so t too great an opinion on it. So um, I found something next on uh, Gibraltar. So that's where we go next. Let me just get the um, get the article. Here we come. So Pedro Sanchez, uh, obviously, uh, he must be looking at what's happening for uh, the future to continue working towards a treaty that would create an area of shared prosperity for Gibraltar and the Campo de Gibraltar. Uh, the PSOE, the Labour Party's election manifesto, nevertheless stressed that this would have to respect Spain's position on sovereignty, while the Minister of the Interior, Fernando Grande Marlaska, warned that dialogue between Spain and Gibraltar, Gibraltar uh, could be lost with a change of government. So how strong is the feeling in Spain about wrestling Gibraltar away from the influence of Britain? <laughs> this is another perennial, isn't it? Or 
or every time the election comes around or something, Gibraltar comes up. There's always a fair amount of sabre rattling from both sides. Uh, and to generate, a, um, to get the Spaniards behind the flag and to, uh, and, and come up with all sorts of schemes to, to generate big discussions on television, uh, how we're defending the country and we must gain our, we must get our country back. Um, well, your country doesn't want you. You know, Gibraltarians voted 99.99% recurring to remain under the, the, the British rule, shall we say. This is not part of the Commonwealth or such, I don't know where it's, it's got it's got a special name. But certainly not Spanish. They do not want to be Spanish. But every every few years there's always something comes up where somebody is guaranteed you're gonna get into the newspapers. If you can bring something up about Gibraltar uh, and, and make some sort of statement, you're gonna get people uh, T V love it at the station, they'll come straight around your house, they'll start recording things and there'll be programmes and all the rest of it. But it all ends up the same. It all just floats away and flip-flops down the street and everyone forgets about it till the next round of, uh, of discussions about Gibraltar and, it's, uh, and the Spanish claim on the, the, the rock. Well, I did it's find... Just, I, I found that um, Spain's political vox, uh, led by Santiago Abascal, is the most outspoken, promising to dismantle the networks of piracy, drug trafficking, smuggling and money laundering that spread out from Gibraltar. Portraying the Campo de Gibraltar as vulnerable, the party included in the underpopulated areas which it would assist by providing companies with tax and employment incentives. The Vox Manifesto committed the party to applying international pressure for the return of this occupied territory while rejecting any EU, UK or Spain-UK agreement that did not respect Spain's sovereign rights over the British colony of Gibraltar. So you wonder somewhere along the line, did Vox miscalculate that one? Probably. But again, they, they, they can't go wrong talking about Gibraltar. You mentioned anything about Gibraltar in Spain, you're, you're going to get some, you're going to get some uh, serious media space. It's, it's quite funny. I mean, what's the name of the British... Uh, um, um, guy who defeated the armada who was that what, nelson no not nelson oh sorry 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 yeah you mean uh the, the bowls on uh plymouth hoe yeah yeah uh, oh, easy well, the reason be sir francis drake yeah right we always call it sir francis drake sir francis drake sir francis drake in spain his title is the pirate francis drake Oh, <laughs> right. he was actually. He was. He was a privateer. He was a private. He was a pirate, but he's known as the pirate Francis Drake. So, and of course, he, he, he uh, the, the Armada got a severe good hiding, um, and the weather conditions prevailed. Yeah. Helped an awful lot, believe me. Um, they they failed in their conquest to to get the the the, the Huguenots and the Dutch and whatever to and the French to fight to join on their battleships and and, and attack Britain. It never obviously just failed completely, but it, it, it gives you a clue when they, they 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 talk about Sir Francis Drake, as we call him, as the pirate Francis Drake. So that gives you an idea. So when you talk about piracy in Gibraltar and the rest of it, you you, you can get the impression of how they consider anything anything the rock, shall we say, British. But I forget, I Menorca was British for many many years, for for a long long time. It was a British island. Just north of the small island, north of Mallorca. Yeah. Menorca. And even Alicante. 
Alicante itself was was under British power for a number of years. Um, so you know the, the kingdoms and fiefdoms change like, like the wind over the over the years. But the the Gibraltar it's a treaty and it's there, but it's ours. Sorry about that. It's no use to us at all. There's no. It's a very strategic lump of rock. Obviously, if you can fire a cannon from Gibraltar, you could you could hit the African mainland on the other side, probably. So anything coming from the Straits of Gibraltar, which has to to get into the Med at those days, um, you controlled the Mediterranean. So it was in a, a hell of a place to have control of. Nowadays, somebody presses a button, it's disappeared. So it doesn't have any any use at all. Banks love it because it's. Uh, uh, as, as he obviously is alluding to, a sort of tax, tax-free paradise, shall we say. I don't know about drugs and the rest of it. I think there's a lot more drugs entering Spain other than anywhere near Gibraltar. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's curious when he, when, he, when he mentioned about piracy. That, that, that just struck straight away, and I thought about Francis Drake, the pirate Francis Drake. <laughs> OK, well, we're going to look next at the Spanish Beach Handball Championship. So, um, what have we got for you in this one? So the Spanish uh, Beach Handball Championship has been suspended after at least five players received injuries from nails buried in the sand. Now, this began on Thursday, July the 27th on the beach at La Termanica, uh, Termica sorry, in Almeria. And uh, obviously the tournament had to be uh, suspended. Uh, discoveries of nails buried in the sand, according to the Almeria City Council and the Royal Spanish Handball Federation. It's believed that the nails were, then, were there because of the remains left by the bonfires that were lit on the night of San Juan on June the 23rd. The council had been asked to help with the deployment of specific machinery for a more exhaustive cleaning of four of the ten courts in order to remove any hazardous material. Um, well, in actual fact, the, the there's I think it was either four or five of the athletes had to go to the hospitals. And in the meantime... Uh, the Almeria Town Council has sent a beach cleaning brigade to work on the affected playgrounds. However, Adriana Valverde, the PSOE local spokesperson, described what happened as very serious. Someone has to give explanations in addition to endangering the integrity of the athletes. The city is going to receive a very negative image at national level, which is absolutely right, isn't it? I mean, that is pretty bad to... Um, to sort of not clean that one up properly when they've got an international well, competition. Well, I mean, to be honest, Vince, you could clean that in half an hour. I mean, I mean, you really could. You could clean that in half an hour. So I don't. Yeah, I mean, people have been injured. Um, you know, whatever next. I mean, chucking broken glass on football pitches and going as well. It happens. There, 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 there are idiots around, and trouble is, if these idiots can can do something and get themselves on. Get their acts on the telly, which obviously would have happened. Then um, more kudos for them is, is their idea. So uh, yeah, it happens. You've, uh, sadly, we live in a world now where you just can't trust anything. You have to assume that the worst can happen. I mean, nails is one thing, but I'd imagine there's more more syringes under the sand than, than nails. To be honest with you. Yeah. 
Well, we've got um, something else that we should mention in passing, which is the Spanish, I think they call it the spider fish. Um, I don't know if you've heard of those, Terry, but apparently it's the same fish that we had down in Cumul, which we call the, the weaver fish. And if people sort of are walking along and then suddenly they stand on them and they do tend to hide themselves in yeah. in the sand, they have these spikes on their um, spine, which are really, really painful. So, uh, you know, just in case anybody's walking on the beach and uh, perhaps it's where there's been a, a tide coming in. I know, I know we're not terribly tidal on the Mediterranean, but it's a, it's a nasty old thing to stand on, you know. Yeah, they're, they're true. Well, I remember me, me niece, bless her, how old was she then? She'd be about six or seven. Um, she <clears throat> she trod on a uh, sea anemone. And that, I mean, literally, virtually went virtually through her foot. It was uh, a yeah. horrendous, horrendous thing to get out of her foot. And, and the screams and the, the pain involved. Um, but yeah, these, I know the fish you're on about. Um, I'd imagine that's a more a lesser problem, but, but, but certainly around the, the shallow waters where you get the sea anemones. Yeah. Um, which are very nice to eat, is it? And they're quite tasty. Okay, uh, so we're staying in Spain. I've got a nice bit of Spanish news all over the show this particular week. I mean, some weeks it's so difficult to find anything. Mm. Um, but I think this one also is worthy worthy of a look at. So it's all about uh, monitoring the fumes at sea and it's the European Maritime Safety Agency and the General Directorate of the Merchant Navy. And uh, this is being pointed out that apparently the EMSA drone, which apparently is the remotely piloted aircraft systems, has returned to the Strait of Gibraltar for the second time to detect the level of sulphur oxide emissions. Uh, ships can be seen emitting fumes most days, uh, most days claims the organisation, and claiming uh, that ships in the Bay of Algeciras exceed the limits set by the Marpol Annex of Six agreements. It's easy to see the plumes of smoke coming from ships crossing the Straits of Gibraltar without control, they stated. These come from ships that pollute the air, and due to the action of the wind, this contamination spreads tens of kilometres um, inland, increasing local air quality problems, they added, and as a result of these emissions, the environmental organisations stressed that particles of pollution, such as soot, sulphur and nitrogen oxides, harm human health, the environment and the climate. So, is this something that uh, crops up intermittently? And if so, you don't think of it as something that you'd expect to be coming from the Straits of Gibraltar? Well, you mean ship pollutants? Yeah. Well, it's just... I imagine it's probably less nowadays, in as much that um, a they're not sort of coal-fired, are they anymore? Um, B shipping basically is carried out, as I can see on the horizon, huge, enormous tankers that look like the size of Benidorm, but probably the height of some of the skyscrapers as well, which are carrying, I say, tankers, container ships, which are carrying I don't know how many thousands of containers, 
through the Med and up into then up the into Europe. Um, that's one ship, one engine, one funnel. Um, I, I would imagine, ton for ton, they're a lot more efficient now than the, the thousands and thousands of small ships plying their trade um, years ago, or not so many years ago for that matter, just trying to shift the same tonnage of, 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 of commerce. So, um, yes, <laughs> they are fossil fuel ships. Yes, but they no longer have sails. Um, yes, they, they pollute the atmosphere, but I can only assume that it's to a far lesser degree than it was 30, 40 years ago. Far lesser. It's, it's interesting because it's something that, you know, until you stop and think about it, um, you know, as you have, have uh, rightly said, you know, you'd expect everything to have improved over the years and uh, probably less pollution to come. But I mean, that one, the environmental is a star sh um, shouting about this particular week in the paper. And it was just uh, basically something I'd never heard of. And I just wondered if it's something that um, crops no, up from time no, to time. I, I mean, I look out at the sea uh, and I'll, I'll see a cruise ship and I'll probably see a container ship on the same horizon uh, over an hour, shall we say. That's two. Uh, a short of, uh, short of my binoculars down to the motorway, it runs about three miles from me. There's a hell of a lot more going on down there than ever there is out at sea. So I'd imagine we're talking about a very, very, very small pollution level. I'd imagine that um, a plane, just one plane passing over, probably chucks out as much as a, a container ship. So, no, I'll, I'll, yeah, of course it's a pollutant. But is it a problem? It's out at sea. So, <laughs> nobody's going to be blowing in. I'll never, I've never seen a container ship on the horizon and go like, can you smell that? <laughs> well, well, that one we were talking about, do you remember last year, uh, last week we were talking about the the electric car that went on fire? That was confirmed as an electric car, by the way. Um, you were quite surprised. Well, this, this is the grave danger. All cars can be set on fire. And occasionally we'll see witness on the side of the road where the tarmac's all been melted and burnt, where a car has had a fuel leak or something in the short and it's, it's, it's blown up. But uh, sadly, um, electric cars appear to have that, uh, that Achilles heel. Um, but apparently it appears, so we're told, that it comes from cheap Japanese imports. Japanese? Cheap Chinese imports, uh, which is a great phrase to use for everything. Um, so how true that is, I don't know. How true, how true it is that these fires are caused by badly made batteries, I don't know. I can only assume that is the case. I can't think that people are investing billions and billions into, into manufacturing car uh, batteries, lithium batteries down in Somerset, for instance, and Newcastle, I'm knowing full well that it's, it's a fire risk. So I don't really... Uh, no, I don't. I don't. I don't buy that one as a as a as a general problem for electric cars. Well, another thing that was quite interesting in in the UK papers yesterday was that uh, with uh, quite a lot of flash flooding here and there, um, they were talking about one particular white um, electric car, twenty three grand's worth. So it wasn't the top of the range, but you know, uh, still pricey. And um, uh, it, they were saying that um, because of the flood water, it had ruined the car completely. It, be, it was a write-off. And batteries don't like water. Electrics and water don't go. Yeah. So oh. um, I can imagine. Well, I mean, a lot of cars, if you've 
well, no, you've, you've really got to seriously flood them to uh, to write them off. You're quite true because the battery's the lowest lung. The battery's in the lowest part of the car. Um, so unless they are extremely, well, I can only assume again that these things are extremely well insulated and protected. To, because certainly on British roads, you haven't got to go through a flood. So about 360 days of torrential rain bashing on the road and flying up underneath your car, you probably get quite to the same effect. So I can only assume that these these things are um, insulated against uh, water, um, like everything else. They, they don't want nobody wants bad publicity when you're chucking billions into an industry. So I'd imagine they'd be covering all the bases on that one. So logically speaking, yeah, the battery will be always placed uh, in in electric cars. It's in the lowest part of the vehicle because of the weight. Yeah. Um, therefore, that's the reason if you've got flood water, that's the area that's going to get touched by um, water can get into it. But again, as long as it's perfect, properly insulated, I don't think it should be a problem. Okay, well, we're going to look next at um, bluefin tuna. I don't know if that's um, something mm. you'd normally eat. Mm, oh, yeah, I love a bit of tuna. Yeah, raw tuna fish, lovely. Okay, well, let's see what the Gibraltar government uh, have been up to. Okay, so every year the Gibraltar government allows local fishermen to fish for this bluefin tuna, although invariably, if there are significant catches, it puts a halt to the season. Uh, this year is no exception, as the locally-based Mason family and there's two brothers and the dad and the friend uh, have once again reeled in record catches after landing a colossal 376-kilogram bluefin tuna caught off the shores of Gibraltar. That's a big boy, isn't it? 376. Goodness gracious me. The Gibraltar Environment Agency has reminded anglers and catering establishments who offer tuna of the necessary food hygiene requirements for the handling, storing and refrigerating of tuna in a proper manner. Once the fish is offered for sale, it becomes a food product and as such, food hygiene uh, and safety requirements apply. It says that catering establishments procuring such fish should therefore ensure that the following conditions are met always uh, to ensure the safety of the fish meat. Uh, Number one, the tuna must be processed in approved registered food premises. The cutting up of tuna at the quayside on boats or vehicle exposes the fish uh, to the risk of contamination and is not permitted. Tuna, which is cut and processed in this manner, may result in environmental health officers detaining and seizing the tuna and legal proceedings may be considered. And then two, portions must be wrapped in a suitable food grade material as soon as possible. And three, the product must be frozen to at least either minus 20 degrees for not less than 24 hours or minus 35 for not less than 15 hours. So there's a little bit more to uh, just uh, going out and catching yourself a bit of bluefin tuna by the looks of things. Don't you think we're all a bit nanny state? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we really are. I mean, people have been fishing is is probably one of the oldest industry, one of the oldest industries apart from prostitution that's been going on forever. Uh, Traditionally, Blokes going out in boats, coming back with fish, um, pulling the boat up on the beach or bring it onto a dock. The fish get, gets chucked out outside the boat, gets sold, chopped up, whatever, and it's on the plate within hours. Um, 
I don't see where they've gone wrong with that. Um, there is there's been a bit of problem regarding mercury apparently in some some areas with the fish, but the, but tuna. I mean, the, the way they used to I don't know how they do it now, but the way they used to catch the tuna, the old days. You'll see a lot of the uh, tuna boats, which are just rowing boats, big rowing boats, right? Where you'll see a big rowing boat, and, and there'll be four or six huge lamps hanging over the side of it, huge, like about you know two foot diameter lamps. And they go out at night, and then they get to the area where the, the tuna are passing, and they put these lamps on. They fire these lamps up. So in the old days, they'd have been just they'd been oil, burning oil, whatever. So when the light hits in the sea, the tuna fish comes up to it. For some reason, they think it's the moon or wherever it is. Or the sun. I have no idea. And basically, the tuna fish come up, and all you've got to do in your boat is, is gaff them in with a hook. Just get a big, big spike and just whack it into the side of the tuna fish and bring it over the side. And within within two or three minutes, your your boat is full. You can't get any more in, and you start rowing. Then you row back to, to shore. But that, those boats are the I haven't seen them around for a while. Actually, thinking about it, but the, they always used to be parked up at the different harbours around the coast around here. Uh, you'll mm. always you'll always I'll have, to have a look, have a good look. I'll have a good next look next time down Altair Harbour. But they were always out there with these 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 lamps. So the easiest thing to fish, and you come back in and you eat it. So now we've got to have all these laws. For what? I mean, in case of what? Well, come on, it's a I, nanny state. I eat raw tuna. Raw tuna is a is a lovely, it's a it's a lovely meal. It really is a lovely meal. Tuna, tuna tartare, just like steak, like a steak tartare. It's got to be a good piece of steak. It's got to be a good piece of tuna. But it's 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 a it's a lovely flavour. I've got no qualms eating it raw. Okay, we we'll go to the uh, headline, the midday headline in the UK. Why weren't they stopped? Ex-police chief slams major security breach and demands probe after Greenpeace activists climbed onto the roof of Rishi Sunak's two million pounds Yorkshire mansion and draped it with black banners. Uh, why are the police unable to stop these, the, this lot? I mean, it's this year the police have seemed inept, haven't they? Really, in the UK. Well, I think that the police have got. Unfortunately, the, the police are sent for everything now. I mean, obviously they've, they've drawn a line now at going out to the mentally ill. You now have to have mentally ill trained uh, ambulances and special ambulances and ambulance workers to go out to a call where a mentally ill person is involved. I think they've just stopped that one. I think they were just I think they were just talking about a change that yeah. they were going to stop that and because well, you you're well, absolutely because right. Because the point being, the point being, the point being they brought that one up is because they are expected to be absolutely everywhere doing everything. The 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 the, the thing of a policeman is there to to catch criminals and hopefully stop criminality, but well, that seems to have gone by the by the board. But to, to catch criminals is, is long gone. They're all they're, they're all been reduced to pen pushes, paperwork. There aren't there are very few on the street, pounding pounding the streets. That stopped when I was a kid. When the kid when the panda cars came out when I was about how old I'd be then about ten or twelve or something, the panda cars came out and I've never saw a cop on the street after that. Before the tall back bloke with the funny hat coming up the road with his, his gloves in his hand, it was like you put the fear of what's it into you because you immediately feel guilty. Well, obviously, as a kid, you've obviously done something wrong somewhere, and because they always glared at you, and uh, but you immediately felt guilty. But that just disappeared when they got converted into into chuck them in twos into panda cars, 
and um, probably stick a dog in the back as well for good fun. But then that panda car is going past at 45 mile an hour, doesn't see anything what's going on. Yeah. But the bottom line is the police have been the police. I, the idea of police policing has been destroyed in the UK. Uh, you look at the states; it's gone over the top in the UK. They're that, they're just they're, they kill people. Yeah. Traffic offences, you'll get shot. You know, it's completely the other way. So maybe maybe we are quite lucky to have a a, a country still that's not bristling with weapons uh, and pulling guns to shoot people on the street for. Uh, a minor, a minor uh, incursion. Um, but what they're supposed to do? But, but, uh, 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 send the army out then around Rishi Sunak's ass. So I just uh, what they do have to do is 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 apprehend these people and bloody give them a good. I'd give them a good idea to be honest with you. It's like it used to do on the Isle of Man. But give them give them a, a public uh, embarrassing, a, a public. Um, chastisement in as much that they're they are in prison or they're put somewhere where they're not going to like it and and find them proportionally as to their income because that is the problem there's a lot of these hooray hooray henry's out there um living on dad's money and they need to be fined proportionally all yeah. fines should always be proportional, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, we've got two minutes left. I'm going to ask you a question and see whether or not you can um, see right. the same that I see. Um, we've had the fear of inflation going for ever since I can remember. The biggest thing, the biggest worry was always inflation. Um, we know that the Saudis are trying to disrupt the football and... To offer 259 million, was it, or 95 million for Mbappe and then yeah, pay, pay the likes of Jordan Henderson 700,000 a week. Um, there's got to be some sort of a connection there, Terry. Uh, inflation and the sort of money that's being offered to people, certainly Henderson, who isn't certainly worth uh, that sort of money. What do you think? Well, it's all right paying this money for these individuals. The money's got to come from somewhere. I think regarding when you're talking Saudi Arabia, you're talking a different complete. Uh, there's there's lakes of money, like they 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 must burn it to chuck it in the stoves to heat the heat the boilers up in the winter just because it's cheaper than burning oil. They they have that much money. They have really no idea what to do with it. They are desperate to buy some sort of stage on the world stage, uh, 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 acceptance on the world stage, i.e. through golf through the live golf, which is dis destroying the PGA. Uh, now, through football, um, there's no reason why they can't buy every decent footballer in the world and take them over there. And then they'll be playing amongst themselves and they get their money back on the TV rights. The TV rights pay their money because they get their money back off the people advertising on their TV programmes. The people advertising on their TV programmes is the washing up powder company and the other bits of articles that you buy on a weekly basis, and all of a sudden there's 10p gone on top of your product. I just want to, to throw to pay for the footballer. I want to throw one very last spanner in the works because the English Premier League spokesman has said that there are robust measures in place to stop the inflation of these wages and the Saudis taking away the game from the Premier League. I don't believe that. I just wonder whether or not it's impossible. No, it's absolutely impossible. You can, you can, for instance, you can have a, um, um, you can put a block on a, a football that can't be any more than £100,000. That's the transfer fee for a football. A footballer's wages can't be any more than £50,000 a week. 
that can be blocked. Yeah, we can do that. You can force you can force the teams that they can't pay more than that for a footballer and they can't pay more than that for his wages. Fine. Now what happens? Commerce comes in because the big money is on what's on his shirt. The big money in what he's what's he promoting on the TV is the can of Coca-Cola in his hand, the ball that he's kicking, the shirt that he's wearing. That's where the, 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 the big money they, they get their, for their wages. That's where it comes from. They can't control that. You just can't control it. You can control the wages. You can control the transfer fee. You can't control the big money, the commercial money where the clubs make the money. OK, Terry, I've got to leave it there. We're bang on the hour. OK. And once again, big thank you for joining me and look forward to the next one. Cheers, pal. See you next week. Thank you, Terry. Bye, then.